So I come to Buffalo Wild Wings to eat lunch and watch sports. I get to pick one of seven entrees, like sandwiches and salads, plus one of seven sides. What like sides? It's so affordable, I can finally take a vacation. Where are you going to go? Here. Here. Introducing the new B-Dubs Fast Break Lunch Menu. Starting at a new low price. Dine-in or order takeout weekdays between 11 and 2. Participation and availability may vary. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports. Bra-pa-ding-wa. Bra-pa-ding-wa. This is staff only. La 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 la. Welcome back to another episode of Humor and the Abject, you chimney sweeping screedlers. It is such a fucking honor this week to have the podcast sponsored by one of my favorite breakfast treats that has ever existed. Rice goddamn crispies. If that isn't enough, we are also sponsored this week by Arizona State University. Go Sun Devils. Yummy yummy. Yummy yummy. Snap crackle BFA. Let's go to college. Yay! If you go to Arizona State, it automatically means that you also eat every day at Buffalo Wild Wings. Another sponsor for this episode. I can't get enough of those tasty little wings. Dip them in ranch. Dip them in blue cheese. If you are an Italian-American student, you can dip them into marinara sauce and eat dinner for four fucking hours with your extended family. At Buffalo Wild Wings, your extended family. At Buffalo Wild Wings, you are Fugazi. Sheriff Joe Arpaio should be imprisoned. Remember that time that his posse of dipshit pigs tried to bust a prostitution ring but the whole case got thrown out because the officers actually had sex with the prostitutes? Remember that time that he crashed his police cruiser into the property of a pharmacy while he was high on the very painkillers he was trying to refill a prescription for? Remember that time that his pig pen killed a fucking dog and let it rot in the Arizona sun for multiple days and then their urban tank rolled over a bystander's car? Remember how he is a publicity whore and in an effort to compensate for the size of his penis he made all of his inmates at Tent City wear pink underwear? Remember when he racially profiled literally anybody who wasn't white and was found guilty of criminal contempt of court after costing taxpayers over 70 million fucking dollars of their own money? It's so fascinating that Donald Trump has pardoned him. Gee. I wonder why he would do that. I wonder what signal that sends to white supremacists and dumbass cops across the country. I will have to think about it some more. It doesn't seem too obvious. And as we all know Trump is a master of nuance. A master of nuance of these nuts. Fuck you. Let's turn it over to your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney.
I'm Ira Glass. Welcome to Jackass. It's episode 14 of the Humor in the Abject podcast. I'm your host, Sean J. Patrick Carney. Had a very fun night last night at Amy Zimmer's. That was fantastic at New Women's Space. Uh, I'm recording this on Wednesday the 23rd, so that was last night the 22nd. I heard also that she's going to be doing at least one more at New Women's Space in September, so please stay tuned for that. I'll be sure to let everybody know. Uh, but last night, I saw Sonia Denny, Lorelai Ramirez, uh, Colin Burgess, Jess Tom, Artie Gallipudi, and Shalewa Sharp, and it was one of the funniest shows I've been to in a really long time. Now, this week, my guest is the writer Amelia Gray from Los Angeles. I met Amelia over the winter holiday in late 2015 in Tucson, Arizona, where she's originally from. A mutual friend, Andrew Shuda, who was one of the people running Spork Press, had invited me and Claire to hang out with some people at, uh, I think it was Our Bar in Tucson. And right off the bat, Amelia and I found a lot of common ground around our interests in writing. And a few weeks later, a copy of her 2015 short story collection, Gut Shot, which was published by FSG, showed up in the mail at my studio. Uh, over the next few nights, I tore through it and was really struck by her ability to weave humor and pathos and horror and humanity into these really economic bits of fiction. Uh, Amelia is the author of four other books, including her newest novel, Isadora, and the 2012 novel Threats, both which were also published by FSG. In 2009, Featherproof Books published her first vignette-comprised collection, AMPM, and another collection of stories, Museum of the Weird, was published by Fiction Collective 2 in 2010. She's a winner of the New York Public Library Young Lion and was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction. Her fiction and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Tin House, Vice, and I'm sure a bunch of other places. Uh, plainly put, she's one of the most ambitious and original young authors working in the United States right now with a brand new book that I cannot wait to read. I'm thrilled that she took some time out of her visit to New York to come by the studio. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Amelia Gray. Amelia Gray, welcome to Humor in the Abject, and welcome to New York City. Oh my God, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm sorry that the trains are a mess. You know what? I just bitched about it for 45 minutes straight, and yes. I, I feel better. Yeah, that's typically how people handle it, I yeah. think. Yeah. Um, so we're recording this on Wednesday the 23rd, and am I correct that you're doing a reading tomorrow night in yes. Cobble Hill? Yes. I am in conversation with Chiara Barzini and Lincoln Michelle at Books Are Magic, which... I suppose is in Cobble Hill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I believe so. And are you? What are you going to be reading at it? Are you reading from your new book? I'll be reading from my new book. We're supporting Kiara's new book, "Things That Happened Before the Earthquake," and um, and I think Lincoln and I are both going to be reading a little, and then we're going to be conversating also. Cool. Yeah. Um, so you yourself have a brand new book, brand new ish. Yeah. A few months old. I completely forget when it came out. I think it came out in May. <laughs> And it's on FSG. That sounds right. It's called Isadora. That's for sure right. Um, okay, so it's based on a specific period of the dancer Isadora Duncan's life, and this is following the death of her two children, mm -hmm. am I correct? Mm -hmm. um, I haven't gotten to read it yet, um, so I'm curious if you could unpack it a little bit for me, because it is described as a novel, um, but it's recounting this specific time in this person's life, and it's also told from multiple different perspectives, mm -hmm. um, from... Isadora and three other people that were in her lifetime. So, um, uh, how's that a novel? <laughs> How does that work? No, I'm just <laughs> that was a nightmare question. I was no. like, oh God, because I would answer it. I'd be like, yeah. well, you know, I'm no, but I'm just I'm interested in the construction of that and yeah. how you approach that kind of like because it, it's it's historical, it's biographical, yeah. but obviously you're inventing a lot of narrative or dialogue. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yes, that is right. Yeah. Well, so in constructing it, I guess. To go back to the beginning of this, because I, I was, I wasn't particularly a. Uh, it always sounds like such a drag when I say I wasn't interested in Isadora Duncan, <laughs> but I wasn't. I was aware of her only in the way that 
that a lot of people are aware. She was a dancer. and She's like she, the mother of modern dance. Mother of modern yeah, dance, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then she died in this kind of aggressively weird way. Right. And that was those are kind of the two things I knew. And then I was... And she died from her scarf, scarf. got stuck in open wheel spokes yeah. of an automobile. Right. And she was torn out of the car. Yes. It's a pretty brutal yes. death. Yeah, incredibly. And... Uh, and in that kind of morbid way, I, I knew about that. And and then the broad strokes of her of her life, I knew what she looked like. But um, I was writing about It Girls on a magazine assignment and started learning more about her and learned, you know, all these, these kind of strange, interesting quotes following her death. Gertrude Stein heard about the scarf thing and said, affectations can be dangerous. Like, <laughs> a, like what a mess. But, and in kind of reading between the lines of that quote, it's like, I started thinking, man, I, I wonder, Isidore maybe didn't have a lot of friends. And, and so I looked closer into that. And, um, you know, she was a really larger than life personality sure. and a big drinker partier and uh at a party once later in her life she was flirting with f scott fitzgerald and zelda threw herself down a flight of stairs (laughs) and just things like that kept happening in this in the in the recounting wait what year did she die um mm, it was 28 okay i think but so she's she's sort of living this lifestyle before it's kind of like a fashionable oh yes thing in the in the 20s where it's right people are Right, right. Yeah. Flappers. Yeah. And yeah, it's the it's the big height of things. Yeah. No, she was she she wasn't doing the corsets and she was barefoot dancing and kind of doing whatever she wanted in, in 1913 when I set the, the novel. And she had been doing it for about 10 years by then. So so she was really um, she was she was going hard towards her own future. And uh, and then I found out the children died and, and I just kind of wanted to explore that scene, that last lunch before um, Isidore's lover, Paris Singer, went back to the office and Isidore went to our studio and the children went and drowned with their nurse. And in a car accident? In a car accident, yeah. yeah. So, so right, the, the car had stalled and then the, the driver got out to crank the engine and the car rolled forward. Um, yeah, I so it just kind of came out of the curiosity of wanting to write that scene and then want to write the scene after that and want to, um, I guess, explore it. Yeah. And and then I, I started, I got into reading her autobiography, which is largely fictional and really strange mm-hmm. uh, and, and written in this incredibly stilted prose. Uh, I guess the, the um, marble stair incident with Zelda happened when Isadora was trying to get Scott to help her edit the manuscript in her hotel room. Um, and it was, you know, uh, I, I thought the bio- the autobiography was as kind of fascinating as her story mm-hmm. itself. And and so then I started like wanting to connect the dots and mess with them in a, in a funny way. So a lot of the quotes from from the novel, which some of the, some of the dialogue in my novel is, is reads a little stilted because I pulled it directly out of her stilted, weird autobiography. Oh, that's um, interesting. Did you feel like that gave you, um, because she's writing an autobiography that has some creative license that, that afforded you the same kind of treatment of this larger than life character? Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 For example, yeah, there's a, there's a moment when a, a surprise pregnancy happens and, and, it's described in her autobiography as happening very um, romantically on a beach. And in real life, I hear, you know, there was, you know, it was this kind of earlier affair. It's all much less romantic because the real life is always less romantic than we want it to be. It's a little sloppier and yeah. not quite as... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it was a very sloppy, not very beautiful artistic kind of situation. But, you know, she wanted, she wanted her life to be the certain perfect beautiful tragic way which um which uh i guess she got in some ways yeah so when you started what attracted you to it was trying to kind of put language to this specific scene that Mm -hmm. happens right before um the children die and were you intending to write a long-form novel at that point or were you just thinking i'm experimenting for myself right now with this story and seeing can it go somewhere yeah i definitely did not 
have it in my head that I was going to write a um, historical fiction project for the next five years after <laughs> I started. And I probably, if I could have looked into the future, just wouldn't, wouldn't have done it. Uh, <laughs> but I, I um, yeah, I, I find that for me when I, I, starting new projects is very much like I have to keep all elements of pressure off. The moment I say I'm writing a novel, this is a novel, it, it falls apart if it's too early. Mm-hmm. Um so it's about the time that we met. You had probably been working on it for a little bit then, because we met right. in like late 2015. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I'd been working on it for three years. Okay, yeah, because I after you, because um, you sent me a copy of Gutshot, which I loved, and oh, thank thanks. you. And then I was kind of I read some interviews and things around. Um, you know, they're a little bit they're from a little bit before we met, but around the time that that book was coming out, and you sort of offhandedly mentioned in a couple of things, well, yeah, I'm working on this novel, and it's mm-hmm. set 100 years ago, and it's in a really specific voice. <laughs> so, and it was this kind of, so I was curious if it, it sounds, yeah. it sounds like the, you know, the suspect here. <laughs> yeah. On. Oh, it was. And I, and I'm very, I was very cagey about what the book was about until about six months before it came out. And I don't, I don't know. I'm like, um, like how cagey? Do you tell people that are close to you, or does or, no one around you know? It's just—it's <laughs> like the dumbest superpower ever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm secretly writing a novel about Isadora Duncan. No, oh lord, no. I um, I would tell close friends, yeah, and then just because telling more people, I don't know. I, I'm sure you've had this experience of like when you oversaturate talking about the project, it mm-hmm. starts. Like one, uh, even if nobody is weighing in on it, which people inevitably are, <laughs> yeah. uh, it still starts kind of falling apart or turning into something when you talk about it. Yeah, it creates and, a whole different level of anxiety, right? And then also yeah. I'm consistently worried if I'm talking about a, a thing that I haven't really put into the world yet that mm. I'm also just, I begin to think that I'm full of shit. Yeah. That I'm going to finish it. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, no, I think that's real. I think playing it close to the chest is smart in that yeah. sense too because it... it lets you feel like um i don't know like you're accountable to yourself but you haven't sort of gone around town telling everyone that there's this <laughs> this experimental novel about yeah. this time in right someone's life some it's people funny. some people have no problem doing that oh which is I, yeah no i know a lot yeah, yeah i know many people oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. these are the same people i always get very um i'm always kind of amazed when somebody posts uh like let's say something onto social media about uh a thing that they've just applied for oh, or something God, like that. And yeah. I'm always like, oh, I would, no, I'm too like embarrassed. I'm probably not going to get it. Right. So I'm not telling anybody. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I will, no one will ever keep know. Keep that very no close one will to ever myself. Know. Oh, yes. Any <laughs> negative press, <laughs> any bad Goodreads review. <laughs> I once asked, I, I asked my boyfriend, uh, I got into like a Amazon review spiral. as I think, Of your own work? Oh, yeah. I think really? A little bit, just for a second. Do but, you still do that? No. I mean, this was about a week ago, so yes, but... <laughs> <laughs> I, cool. I just yeah i i was looking at the i was I'm looking pretending at the, like um, i wouldn't and i i would i would it's hard it not to yeah i mean i i've done it maybe two or three times per book and 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 it's always it's a mix you know it's nice to see do you do the or do you put the stars in order where you start out <laughs> and it kind of hurts and then by the end it's just people who are like this is brilliant and i'm I all yeah and i could have never imagined that this would exist <laughs> It's take all comers. I mean, yeah, it's, and the book just came out. So there's, there's a, you can kind of see all the reviews in one place too. But no, I, I, I said to Lee, um, I said, should I post on, on, on Twitter, um, read Isadora, the book that all books one, two, three calls disappointed. <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> he was like, you can't do that. I'm like terrified too. I looked at, uh, I was getting the link for, this podcast to put it somewhere because I wanted the embedded thing to be the iTunes thing and mm-hmm. not like a website. And uh, people had written reviews of oh, it. Yeah. And I was like, I, you know, I mean, thank, I'm very thankful that people are listening to it. Sure. But uh, the first one I thought was very much in good taste and right in the context of this thing, which said good podcast, but the host has four names, which is overkill. Oh, wow. And I was like, that's, yeah, that's true. And you're like, fair, <laughs> yeah, that's, fair criticism. That's exactly. Like that. <laughs> um, but that, yeah, I, Man, that's got to be tough. I mean, it's really different, I think, when... And this probably happened as you started to have success and more visibility that you've got kind of strangers weighing in on something. They've got this platform where, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I come out of visual arts and 
it's usually by the time that you're at a level where anybody's reviewing anything, it's in a very specific place, mm -hmm. like an art magazine or something like that. And even if um, the reviewer doesn't like your show or something, it's still like you're important enough for them to do it. Sure, but of course. There's not really like an Amazon for art <laughs> where like, people go on and talk about a, a piece or a show that you did. Yeah, that's like, a good point. I guess that's what social media is. But um, Yeah, but people won't even like maybe put it in writing. Yeah, it's not as concentrated, I think. Bitch about it to their friends. Which is really funny, yeah. Cause, yeah. And you used to do, because um, some of Threats before it came out, uh, you were publishing, the, or Vice was publishing bits and pieces or a couple pieces of it, right? Yeah, Vice Vice did an excerpt of it, and then I did a short story with Vice also. Yeah. Yeah. Did they have comments enabled then on oh the website? Oh, God, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. Those are the, those are the, <laughs> <That>. the best. <laughs> the, try to... It's like the person who go. I'm like, why do you read this website? Yeah. I mean, yeah. fuck whatever. You know, whatever somebody thinks of Vice, it's just like sure. you you logged in with your Facebook account right. to like Vice's thing to say. That's two step. Typical, yeah. typical Vice horse shit. <laughs> Drenched in irony, blah blah blah, and it's just like, why are you? Why do you care? I know I what's going know. on with what's going on with your day, but <laughs> no, I I get it. I mean. It's interesting. I I read I'll read these really wonderful, thoughtful, measured reviews of the novel or of the short stories or of anything and um and it's great and what a what an honor and a treat. But I but then I kind of want I like the balance of yeah. like what's the what's the peanut gallery saying <laughs> over here, which in Goodreads or in um or on Twitter yeah. or in the comments section of the Vice piece i sort of i sort of like it i sometimes there's some know. sometimes there's a bit of truth in there that somebody else won't say even if it's not maybe articulated in the most thoughtful um kind of constructive fashion but yeah. you're kind of like oh well yeah, yeah that's, that's a fair that's a i guess they don't read it as a as feedback though maybe that's the deal <laughs> i it's like i i published a story in the american reader about a a woman who cuts off her husband's penis and sews it inside of her as kind of a like <coughs> misdirected like pregnancy uh -huh. attempt um and there were five comments and they were all just like gross <laughs> like <laughs> every five different guys going like this is the most disgusting thing i've ever oh, seen oh yeah and it was just like what a lovely little kind of like guest book underneath my story yeah, that's i thought it was cool. perfect um now, so you are originally from Tucson, Arizona. Yes. And are, are you? No, Claire is. Okay. Um, but I did live in Arizona for a while. And uh, I went to college there in Tempe. In, oh, so did I. Yeah. Arizona State. That's right. You're like the third guest I've had who went to Arizona oh, State. Oh, my God. Which is really funny. You should do a, a Sun Devils podcast. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Go, yeah. go, go uh, Sun Devils. Go Tiny Satans. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I... I, someone told me at one point that the person who designed the Sun Devils logo had previously worked for Disney and had been um, fired or left under not good circumstances. And that's why Sparky, the ASU Sun Devils guy, looks like a little cartoon of Walt Disney. Oh, oh. He has a kind of like a little I can totally Disney see mustache, that, right? yeah. yeah. Except Satan, satanic. Yeah. Yeah. But someone told me that at that college, and everyone at that college is full of shit. So it <laughs> could have been, someone could have made that up and just it told me that It could have been anything um, But I am, so did you live there um, basically like through high school and then left to go to college? Or did you spend most of your youth there? I did. Uh, I, I was born in Tucson and I lived the first seven years there. And then my dad, who <clears throat> worked at IBM, went mm -hmm. from Tucson to Charlotte. We all went went to North Carolina. We were there for seven years and then back to Tucson. Did a some time at a performing arts school in North Carolina and came back right into a college prep style high school where I did not flourish. And then <laughs> I, I ended up at uh, at Arizona State. And you went up north to big, big Phoenix. Um, yeah. I was curious if the kind of the landscape of the Sonoran Desert and kind of that area around it, it's this kind of simultaneously it's really beautiful but it's pretty haunting it's mm -hmm. kind of stark it's very otherworldly um if you feel like that had any effect on the way that you developed as a writer even the way that you're crafting sentences the types of subject matter that you're interested in yeah that's a good question i i've always gotten the sense that people who are from arizona myself included are kind of like a are 
we're all more prone to skin cancer or the white people among us anyway, myself included. And, and it feels like our heads and our brains are closer to the sun <laughs> than most people in the rest of the contiguous U.S. And things get like kind of, kind of boiled, kind of liquidy. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. The longer you're there, it's like, like you're, you're, I don't know. My dad's hair has started to real, really kink out and, you know, uh, and they're just, they're out there sunbathing. Yeah. It does take a toll. Roiling. And, yeah, and and as a result, I I don't know. I'm just um, considering the work of um, like Ed Abbey out there. He's he's buried somewhere in the <laughs> Saguaro des- National um, Desert. I didn't know he this. is. I didn't know that was where he was interred. Yeah, no, his friends took him out there and put him under a under a rock that says no comment or some <laughs> like smartass thing, which is really pretty accurate. Um, no, there's, I, d- I, I mean, don't know. Kind of, there's a lot of grossness there. And there's I don't mean, I mean, uh, I'm separating it from the political grossness. You mean like largesse. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also that the, I mean, just the ecosystem of the desert kind of relies on this economy. Um, like uh, a certain, there's only so many resources available and mm-hmm. things have to kind of adapt and stuff. And I feel like a lot of short fiction is kind of playing around with that same, like, I'm only going to use, I only have this much space. Mm. I'm only going to be able to incorporate this many characters and things like that. So, I mean, maybe that's just a completely subconscious thing and I'm projecting onto you. No, no, I like it. I'll take it all. (laughs) Because I've always kind of wondered because Arizonans are sometimes proud of the non-regional accent. Yeah. That that was why we have the Walter Cronkite School of talking into microphones Mm -hmm. at the Arizona State. I learned to uh, mostly lose my regional dialect when I moved there. I had a Michigan accent and it was, uh, yeah, there was, it was very startling to be someplace where everyone sounded like people did on television, Yeah, which was very confusing to me. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? To, to, I found that a, a big corner of growing up in Arizona was sort of, feeling like you're from nowhere mm-hmm. um well it's not quite the west coast yeah and it it is the southwest but people kind of equate new mexico or texas or places that maybe seem more romantic which is a shame because arizona is a beautiful state i love arizona and yeah mm-hmm. besides phoenix um sure the rest of it's pretty fantastic yeah phoenix is uh, I'm i'm gonna go back to asu to to talk there next month and I'm pretty excited to see campus for the mm-hmm. first time in in a while and um yeah becoming as I've as I've grown older I've started to really crave and look for the the really like vibrant and um deep and loving culture of Arizona mm-hmm. in Tucson you know yeah um, in Phoenix it, it is a little bit harder to find. Yeah. Um, uh, Phoenix is very much like a non-space. Yeah. And it's very sort of spread out. And Tucson has a very different feel to it. Yeah. I mean, you really can. Obviously, Tucson is not compact like New York. But whenever mm-hmm. I visit, like, I mostly walk everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and You stay close to... Yeah, we stay relatively close to downtown. downtown, And so you can kind of walk around. I can't remember the name of the neighborhood exactly, but that's it. And it feels a little bit, um, I don't know. It feels like it has a little bit more of an identity. I think that's true. Yeah. The the vibrant Tucson downtown is kind of a new addition, relatively (laughs) new. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Within the last 15 years. (laughs) The last time that I was there, I I didn't see you uh, last winter holiday when I was there, but I went to. I think it was the first time I ever went to uh, Hotel Congress, mm-hmm. and we went on, I can't remember which night of the week it was, but I went and I ordered a beer, and I don't remember what it was, and you know, the bartender said, well, I just want to let you know, um, this, this is $4. <laughs> and I was like, that's, and you know, the living in New York and me is yeah. like, oh, isn't that quaint right, how right. much it costs or something but sure. i completely misunderstood what he was saying because i gave him my card and i took my beer outside and i, and I looked around and i was with this large group of sort of younger people in tucson and everybody had uh not fancy cocktails but they had like cocktails uh, uh-huh. nobody was drinking beer and everybody had like a well cocktail drink i was kind of like what is going 
on here and finally somebody said oh dude it's like 90 cent tuesdays oh and i was like it's what <laughs> and they're like yeah the drink if you get a well drink it's 90 cents oh my god and i was like that's not a <laughs> effective business model right like that but Wow. I mean, there were a shitload of people there, so yeah, apparently that's, it's that's relatively effective. That's the deal. That's <laughs> um, were you, uh, you were raised pretty religious, is that right? Presbyterian, yeah. so. How, I was raised Catholic. I don't know how religious oh, yeah. Presbyterian is, because I yeah. feel like Catholicism for a lot of Irish people is just kind of like you're supposed to go to church. Mm-hmm, sure. But it's not very, we don't have a Bible. It's, oh, okay. It yeah. wasn't, you wouldn't call it rigorous. No, we just kind of went because otherwise we'd go to hell. Oh, I get it. But that wasn't, my parents never even told me I was going to hell. It was yeah. just kind of like a thing. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Is Presbyterian a little gnarlier? It's maybe a little less gnarly. I guess it depends in what direction you're, you're curving the board, but um, it's... Uh, Is it more rigorous, maybe? I did the I did the modern catechism, which is memorizing the questions and answers for like a hundred 10 different oh. religious concepts. Okay. So that felt pretty rigorous. I was younger. Yeah. Um, and I went to like church camp and and stuff. It was maybe the, the southernness of seven years of my upbringing was more hmm. more rigorous than the general Presbyterian-ness. Presbyterians just love going. They love having meetings. Mm-hmm. They love deciding things. Hmm. Um, Sounds like the DSA. It's very much like the DSA, yeah, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah, you can end up with Presbyterian churches that are that are really that are really um, forward thinking and really progressive okay. because of the, these kind of constant like meeting decision structures that okay. are built in. They're, that sounds um, very different than Catholic Church. Yeah, so in that way, it is. I've yeah. been to the same mass like seven hundred and ninety times. Yeah. <laughs> They change, There's comfort to that. You yeah, know, they change but, a little something. Sure. Um, <laughs> I like to, we go, I go once a year with my sisters and my parents. Yeah. We, we humor my parents and go usually that's, around Christmas or no, something. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm down to with Presbyterianism, but not out of, <laughs> you know, not out of dislike for the institution, I suppose. Sure. Were you writing stories or making up stories when you were a kid? Um... It was maybe closer to end of high school when I started using stories to try and figure out things that were happening in my life. Before that, it was maybe just journaling. But uh, sometime in high school, maybe 10th grade or something, it was I, I took a philosophy class and we could either write essays like explicating the ideas or short stories and like i said earlier i was i was completely unprepared for a (laughs) any kind of rigorous academic (laughs) environment and so i jumped at the idea to like write existentialism as a metaphor and um that was uh i guess those are my first short stories (laughs) cool yeah uh we're gonna take a quick break and hear from our sponsors and i'll be right back with more amelia gray worst Buffalo Wild Wings. 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 Say it one more time. Buffalo Wild Wings. Hi, folks. This is Randy Candy, the king of the basketball shandy. I'm the creator of several signature mixed drinks available across the country at select locations of Buffalo Wild Wings. Recently, B-Dubs approached me about an unorthodox but entirely sexual collaboration with the Kellogg's Cereal Company. The idea was to take one of their flagship cereals, Rice Krispies, and create a unique breading for a futuristic chicken wing that would feel right at home in a Philip K. Dick novel. At first, I was terrified. How could little old Randy Candy tear a hole in the space-time continuum and generate a future wing? But I got over that fear quickly. I became the king of the basketball shandy once again. I honored my mother and connected to the collective unconscious power of the entire universe. I have two hands. One butt. One soul. But that soul is connected to yours. We are one banana hammock. We launched the Rice Krispies Buffalo Wild Wing in a very specific, curated target market. The student body at Arizona State University. 
let's just say that those sun devils know how to party. And they know how to eat wings. It was the single most impressive test kitchen event in culinary history. I am a god. Leaders of the world kneel before me and cower in shame. I am the wing king. Behold my naro. These wings will be available to most audiences very soon. If you know that you want them, call your local Buffalo Wild Wings and demand that they introduce Randy Candy's new product. Pick up the phone and dial 718-943-9453 to reach the Buffalo Wild Wings at 139 Flatbush Avenue in Atlantic Terminal in Brooklyn. Ask to speak to the manager. You won't be sorry. Tell them Randy Candy sent you. Joe Arpaio is a racist coward and a fucking criminal. talk to you about an interview that you did with the New Yorker which also put out the labyrinth mm -hmm. story before Gutshot came out it was like a preview or um I maybe right right around that time? maybe right around that time yeah yeah and they were whoever was interviewing you was sort of asking about there's this twist at the end of this short story about the main character Jim and asking you if you kind of knew what the ending was and mm -hmm. Jim is wandering through this corn labyrinth that's been built and I won't spoil it uh, further than that but and I really have been thinking about the response that you said which was you basically said you know did you know what the ending was going to be and you said not at all I write completely soaked in the scene with my nose very close to the page and I was thinking about this funny guy Jim imagining what he would be thinking about and actively trying not to think about what he might find at the center of a labyrinth I wanted the experience of writing that first draft to be like walking the path itself. And I'm curious if you tilt, uh, if you still rather take that approach when you're doing short stories. I'm sure Isadora was a very different thing because you're constructing from this historical stuff. But mm -hmm. are you still kind of making it up as you go along? I'm always curious if people are when they're writing. Yeah, I I do try to stay as close to the the current scene as I can. And, and I guess Isadora was similar in some ways, but... I mean, different in some ways, but in a, I, in the same way, I wanted to not read ahead too much in her actual life. I didn't go deep into her biography and, and get the, the childhood stuff and the, and the later in life stuff, because I, I really wanted to have this, this one kind of slice of the pie. And cause it's just, a, that book is just about a year, right? Yeah. Or it's a year and a half. A year and a yeah, half. Yeah. Okay. And then kind of a year and a half into writing it, um, much of it, much of which kept uh, hitting the exact hundred year anniversary. Uh, it's like it was 2013 that a lot of it was happening, and and I kept weirdly seeing the same s stuff, <laughs> or, you know, same day passing by, which was kind of eerie. But um, at some point, I I finally read ahead a little bit into her life and and realized a few things that happened. Um, one of which was World War One starting, and then saw the natural frame for the for the book. And I guess, I guess that's the that's the movement I really prefer. If I get too ahead of myself, in the same way as you know, if I if I'm telling everybody what I'm working on, mm -hmm. it it kind of tarnishes a little bit early in my in my mind. And I mean, it's always the story is always a diamond in your head, and every time you write it, it crumbles. I heard Barry Hannah say that once, and I think that's really true. So, like, kind of trying to keep it, keep it whole, and to not try it—I uh, don't know—to to sort of stay close to it as long as possible has always been the most useful for me. Yeah, and I wanted to also talk to you a little bit about the kind of undercurrent of darkness that's in the writing. And it's something that I think a lot of people encounter in your work. And it's part of the thing that people seem to really respond to and enjoy. Um, and it verges sometimes a little bit on horror, um, but it's often pretty surreal. Um, but it's really engaging, I think, too. Thanks. And some of the stuff's like visceral and kind of weird and yeah. makes me like kind of squirm. Yeah. But I keep... Uh, 
I keep reading because I feel like there's going to be it, it's going to be worth it if I get through or I get to know these characters and things and I'm wondering if you're ever uncomfortable with the people that you're conjuring up or the situations that you're putting them in or for instance this you just said the, the botched kind of attempt to impregnate oneself with right. sort of this like, <laughs> or the things that you've come up with that you're like I'm actually not going I'm not following that uh, path I'm not yeah. going to write about that yeah um, right the the pregnancy thing story was kind of an interesting I wanted to think about the situation of wanting so badly to have a child that you would do anything which is a situation I've witnessed in people Mm -hmm. in people really close to me but but which I haven't really felt personally (laughs) and um you know was curious about it and then and then around that time of my curiosity, I read about there's some, some species of whale that in the mating ritual, the penis detaches. Um, Whoa. I, I think that that's true anyway. I, I think I read it somewhere. <laughs> that's not, there's, a, there's a band called King Missile who has a song called Detachable Penis. That's oh, yeah, just yeah, reminded yeah. me of. From, yeah. I remember I got that on Napster in like it's 2000. One. I was like, what it's is this? Song. Anyways, but. Yeah. And it's probably that, no, that probably has some kind of, <laughs> me listening to that, that song in some kind of scummy, like, Phoenix, yeah. Arizona State party situation. <laughs> that, yeah. Napster. Oh, my God. But, yeah, it, kind of all that stuff converged. Um, and so the story as a result, if you think about those, those like, um, those sort of things being the inspiration, it's really a pretty innocent sweet even story about a couple that loves each other i think so and and then but the result of that kind of the viscerality that i realized was required it's like okay let's do this there's gonna have to be and then you just look at it from a practical sense you're gonna need plastic sheeting and Uh a needle and thread and something to do the sterilization and then once that all comes into place you're like all right now i just describe it (laughs) okay here we go (laughs) and um i think i heard you talking on maybe it was the LA Review of Books podcast and you were sort of mentioning that sometimes you're very you you try very much to follow like what would this medical procedure logically need to go and then sometimes you're just like well I'm going to just sort of make up what happens during this right type of thing and right (laughs) yeah I I went through a kind of funny period funny to me only I think that uh when I was trying to um I was I I wanted to remind myself that fiction doesn't have to be um, precise in its kind of anatomically precise. I wrote this story called The Swan is Metaphor for Love and um, just wanted to like make up facts about swans as as like like largely as I could and kind of guess at like how old they got. And because I I just I wanted to draw the the snarky criticism as to the reality of swans. (laughs) I can't remember if the thing got fact-checked into correctness, but that was <laughs> what I was started by going for because it's fiction, for fuck's sake. You yeah. Know? It's pretty funny now, though, because you that would take about nine seconds to research in right. this day and age. To be right. Like, How long does a swan live? And you just be like, fuck that. I'm not looking it up. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love not knowing things because you in an, in an era in which you can learn and know anything. Yeah. You know, I think that there's some, there's some kind of loamy... Um, Loamy thing where you, when you don't know what a word is and you just hang out and say like I don't loamy what does that what does that even mean <laughs> seems kind of foamy or fuzzy or gross I don't know loamy <laughs> sexual that seems sexual did you have like a you have like a list of gross things running in like a notebook of things that people <laughs> might do to each other or a notebook of my of... subconscious <laughs> <laughs> no I I mean I I I'll come to it when I feel I ha- I have to. It's strange. I don't start out with the with the grossness ever. I <laughs> it just ends up kind of being there. I just it's really hard for me to not think of my body as this bizarre warbling blood sack. I mm-hmm. and I think that I'm not unique in thinking that, but it's it's like just kind of walking around in New York August. Oh like, yeah. Jesus Christ and like kind of crammed into the G train with a number of complaining, stinky strangers and just like, man, what a fantastic, like life is phenomenal. <laughs> it's, it's truly, you know, what a, what a strange and wonderful time. Yeah. I get really freaked out thinking about like my guts. 
Oh, yeah. Like the how they're twisting around and yep. things? And okay. just that there's yeah. like blood moving through my Some body slow-mo. right yeah. now oh, and totally. weird things and that things are firing to make other things happen. Oh, and yeah. I get pretty overwhelmed, but I can uh, I can read about other people's things like that. I don't oh, want yeah. to. Yeah. And I maybe that's... <laughs> I don't... Yeah. That's interesting, the distinction, because... But I can't watch really gory shit i can read relatively like pretty Mm. descriptive things about like flesh and stuff like Mm -hmm, that but mm -hmm. i cannot watch a needle go into somebody's arm i can't do needles in a movie even yeah i can see something really obviously over the top ridiculously gross but pretty accurate kind of portrayals of corporeal violence like someone piercing someone's skin or doing something like that really they're trouble I get, I get pretty i get pretty tweaked out i i try when i was in school i tried i went to do a um medical testing thing so that to get over my fear of needles and oh. to make 800 dollars. was it plasma uh no it was like a multi-day oh okay. te- like test the plasma donation was big at arizona state yeah a lot yeah. of kids that i knew would go to the strip mall Oh, God. Give up their plasma. For like 50 bucks, yeah, right? I could never do it. Well, you got a bunch the first time. Uh-huh. And then it was like $50 yeah, after that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I, never did that, but I did do the medical testing thing, and it was... Did it get you over the hump? It kind of did, actually. Yeah. I've been able to give blood since that, um, but I, I passed out twice. Oh. It was hard. I passed out when I got my ears pierced when I was like oh. 16 or 15. <laughs> and my mom took me to a... To like a Claire's? No, I went to... I was insistent that we go to like the one tattoo and piercing shop in my hometown. That's normal. And, uh, but they do it at those places because, you know, I always heard when I was younger that, well, at Claire's you have to get, um, you have to get a stud. Like they shoot the little gun and you get a... Mm-hmm. Good thing. Then you have to wait, and then you can have like a hoop. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to have a stud because no. I was like a 16 year old boy in Michigan. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not walking around with a stud in my ears. Mm-hmm. So my mom took me, and they pierce it with a hollow needle. Uh-huh. I mean, it's very small, yeah. but it is a hollow needle. So there, it was a very different sensation than I thought yeah. it was going to be. And it didn't particularly hurt, it uh-huh. was just a really weird feeling. And then I stood up. Uh, you know, barely into puberty Aww. in this tattoo shop and just fainted and collapsed in front of all of these oh, like no. burly people. And then I woke up and they were giving me like a little high seat juice box. And I was like, <laughs> I felt Mortified. really, I felt very tough after that. But, yeah. Um, oh man, that's pretty, that's pretty intense doing the medical testing. But I guess that, you know, you should put yourself in a little bit of a position if you're going to be writing about those kinds of things. Yeah. Not that I mean, you're writing medical fiction. No, not, predominantly, not a, predominantly or exclusively <laughs> now, but I, I, I like getting into kind of situations where that could be an option, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and it was 800 easy bucks. Wow. Oh. Yeah. And then in the writing too, there's, it's almost like the, there's a lot of this, stuff that's kind of as you said wonky or kind of gross and these things like that but it's really it's like this shot and then it's always tempered with this chaser where there's a lot of wit and kind of different types of humor and things like that in the work and i'm curious if you as an individual as amelia gray are interested in like comedy in general as an art form or if you if there are people that you have always liked or looked up to or if it's just kind of like you just have a certain sense of humor or disposition that finds its way into the writing yeah, you know, I was kind of dreading this um, part of this <coughs> podcast. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I. But it's funny because as a fiction writer, I kind of people generally don't ask about humor, uh-huh. uh, and I don't know. I was. I remember one of my first short stories was a funny one, and I was called a lady humorist, and that mm, was the last a time. A comedian. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> An author mm. <laughs> It was the last time that that kind of thing got mentioned, and then I, I don't know, despite my kind of, my like dopey, jokey Twitter presence and my, in my opinion, um, kind of humor humorous short stories, like it's never, it never really comes up. I get the like serious author treatment. Oh yeah, which you know has its perks too. I like th- I like that stuff too. I'm just interested in how I was 
<laughs> no, I'm glad to talk about it, though. Reading, I'm just saying that I After you oh. sent me Gutshot, and I remember reading it in bed, and I was just like, kind of cracking up them being like weirdly gross and i was like why am i reading this right before i'm going to bed like this isn't like not only is it it's uh it's stimulating on lots of different levels yeah. but one of them was that it was not something that i was like being subdued by that helped me just kind of go to sleep or something like yeah, that so yeah. but it was very very funny and i think that when i had met you um you know we probably have some overlaps in our sense of humor and things like that. And so as an individual, but then when you're like, yes, I'm a writer. And I was like, writers are very serious. And then so when I got this book, I was like, this is a real book. And then I started reading it and I was pleasantly surprised that yeah. that was also that part of your writing voice and that yeah. was in there. So Yeah. I, well, so I'm like, I'm on one hand really excited and and to think and talk about it, about humor and like who my like – humor stars are and you know growing up watching just like every single episode of the simpsons or like loving mitch hedberg and yeah, andy yeah. kaufman and yeah that kind of like like wide-eyed kind of performance that that ducks into like fucked up and weird and you know him coming on to he came on to letterman and punched him in the face right uh, or, or letterman punched him in the face something like yeah, that yeah, yeah. i know that there are lots of story you're talking about andy mm -hmm. yeah i can't keep track of everything and i also feel like i've heard a lot of things that were like you know one time he did this right. and i'm just like really and i just like automatically believe it but. yeah i like that i think that that's the way to go yeah on andy kaufman or you yeah know, mitch hedberg makes sense with kind of your structuring of sentences and kind of playfulness of language too yeah. i think like you have a a pretty kind of poetic tone but it doesn't come across as it feels it feels very kind of open and it's just yeah. sort of like, oh, this is sort of lyrical, this writing, but it's not in a way where I'm sort of feeling as if um, it's meant to be standoffish or it's for a very particular audience or it's something like this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's in uh, Mitch Hedberg's comedy. That was what was so striking about it was that it was insanely lyrical and mm -hmm. really philosophically kind of fuck you up existential stuff mm -hmm. by saying things about the most banal, boring things, which right. is... I guess what everybody kind of says, you know, well, that's what comedy does. And it's like, but that's a very unique case of somebody being able to do that in this way that right. sometimes I'll think about a joke of his. I mean, he hasn't, he's done, he hasn't put out any material. But yeah. I remember when I first was exposed to it, it would be six months later and I would think of one of the jokes and just kind of think, oh, <laughs> no, like that's yeah. like, and it would just have this residual kind of effect. And I feel like that's what, uh, a lot of writing. That's why people reread a book or rewatch a film or something right. is because there's these different resonances and things happening underneath them. Yeah, the way he would structure jokes. I think you you you've said it all. Escalator yeah. has yeah. become stairs. <laughs> Sorry for the convenience. Um, really nice. And and I know he. I'd read that he wrote at a um, like at a Target cafe. What? <laughs> That's where that. he liked to work. And you can just really imagine the like popcorn smell and the hot dog yeah, situation yeah. and the lighting. I mm -hmm. think his ex said that he really liked the lighting. I, I don't know, just something about Mitch Hedberg living in the world and yeah. and and doing that kind of like really precise like needlepoint sort of uh -huh. work. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Where do you like to write? Do you have a, a spot, a nook, or do you kind of just adjust? My, my, I adjust. I really liked, I wrote a lot of Isadora at work when I had a full-time job. But Yeah, but wage yeah. theft. I did write some of it at, um, yeah, I know, I thank my employer for the institutional support and the acknowledgments, but um, I... Cool. I uh Well nobody should have to be at work for forty hours a week. There's not that much work to do. Agreed. I, I read some of it in a closet and when I first moved to LA. It was like a a really big closet, mm -hmm. like the size of um at your house? Or did you I was in an apartment, yeah, yeah. And there was a there was a big old walk in closet that people would use for storage and you could had a nice bar that you could kinda stretch on and, and you can touch the two walls on either side and I just put a bu a bunch of pictures of her and it was great. But I, you're kind of also in this little, you've yeah, got a nice little, little nest to oh, be yes. working in. Oh, yes, a yeah. great nest. I could fit a little desk in there and a yeah. light. And it was really, that was ideal. And <clears throat> I've, I've had better 
writing spaces. Like I had a great one in, when I was in Texas that had a nice view of some bamboo trees. And But looking back at the work I was creating then, there are a lot of stories about a woman looking out a window at <laughs> bamboo trees. <laughs> you know, there was. it's hard not to get away from kind of what I was in front of my <laughs> yeah. stupid face. But so yeah, so like the... It, it sounds like such an affectation a little bit to write in a closet, but it really like removes the kind of, removes stuff for me. I, I have a hard time, you know, writing if there's music playing or even uh, like, yeah, yeah. I cannot. Working, I yeah. I can't do something if something is playing. I can draw if I'm listening to a podcast or something like that, mm-hmm. but I'm not really paying attention. But I cannot write if there's even, uh, even if very calming instrumental music, it actually kind of drives me crazy yeah yeah no same i've tried to write in um like if i'm visiting another city and i'll go to a coffee shop Mm -hmm. and there's one thing that i have found that i can listen to which is i don't even know how i heard about this musician and i think it's it's a woman from canada who's a cellist Hmm. and i think it's called saltland is the name of the thing or something Mm. it's just this droney weird thing and it's almost like white noise but it has like harmonies and things like that but it it's the perfect tonal range that mm-hmm. makes it if you're wearing headphones that you really don't hear oh, nice. a lot of different sounds that are going on and i think because i've done that numerous times i i don't really hear it now yeah or i'm not like kind of ooh, that's about to it's just a background thing that kind of fades away yeah i remember trying to listen to swans when i was writing some of isadora which was okay but a little bit like all right <laughs> but then i i did have some some more luck with this 10 hour youtube video called celestial white noise sleep better oh yeah that's a good one i have a white noise machine at home so do i gotta have yeah. one yeah it's great first floor in oh Brooklyn. boy yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. in yeah. summertime that and the air conditioner going at the same time is just i'm in a You're air, a i'm in an airplane you yeah can't hear. <laughs> I have to enter my mind chamber <laughs> <laughs> um that's uh yeah so do you right now i mean i'm assuming that you're working on writing you probably always are um are you working at home do you go somewhere now i i like working at home and interspersing occasionally with working in a coffee shop which is okay depending on what's going on i don't mind the kind of coffee shop jingle jangle mm-hmm. um i just i just think i need a little bit of um different backgrounds during the day because it's a lot it's hard to work from home mm-hmm. you know it's a challenge it always is kind of i require a couple different settings but yeah i'm i'm right now i'm not working on any any fiction stuff i'm outlining a movie um you fucking did move to la oh yes oh yes baby <laughs> I moved right to la yeah. <laughs> Wait, you don't have to speak on it if it's, uh, again, like, because you don't want to talk about it too much, but you're making up a movie or you're working with other people on something? Well, I mean, one thing I've learned swiftly is, is there's never really, you're never really doing it on your own in, in mm-hmm. Hollywood if if anything's ever going to get made. So I've, I've been outlining a, a feature for a production company and they just gave me notes and I'm, I'm kind of re remixing and... And uh, if they like it, which I think and hope they will, then I'll I'll write it, and then we'll go into kind of a notes spiral okay. after that, and then yeah, we'll see what happens from there. But um, yeah, everything by committee, everything mm-hmm. g- getting flown up the flagpole. There's just mm-hmm. kind of no way around it, I guess. But yeah. yeah, that's a very different type of writing than I mean. I'm sure your publisher. I'm sure you have an editor and things mm-hmm. like that. But it's probably not coming with well. What if this character was? A completely different person. Right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so right. The air is a little so weird. So people would like it more. Yeah. Just like, mm. Right. 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 Exactly. <laughs> now I've, uh, I heard some bit or I, I heard somebody talking about it. Ah, great story. <laughs> where um, <laughs> this group of execs turned uh, like an Anne Frank biopic into snakes on a plane <laughs> through their, through the notes process it was really very classic. It's like, well, what if, you know, what if the danger was a little more contained Wait, and who, something like, uh, who said this? I have no idea. I have no idea. Who Is told it like me a this? sketch? I mean, it might be. It might, it might be real life. This might be the story of the making of Snakes on a Plane. <laughs> There's no way to know. Oh my God. Um, and then besides that, and I know that you can't speak too much about it, but you were working 
you did some writing for a television program that's mm-hmm. coming out soon. Yes. And there's like minor details that you're allowed to say. Is that correct? <laughs> right. I'm under this verboten clause from my boss. But um, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it'll be a Netflix show called Maniac and uh, Emma Stone and Jonah Hill are in it. Half Hour Comedy, Carrie Fukunaga is directing. Mm, from True Detective season one. Heard of him? Mm-hmm. Heard of him? Uh, yeah. So, so right now they're yeah they're they're filming in New York, which is part of. I went out and saw the set yesterday. Oh, cool. Yeah. Nice. I hung out in Video Village on Long Island. And yeah. Yeah. It was it was pretty pretty cool. Wait, like Long Island proper, or Long Island City? I don't know where anything is. Okay, I will say Long Island City is just right above us, where okay. we are in Greenpoint, and is yeah. this kind of inner thing. And then Long Island oh. is like very long. I took the it goes long all the way to Montauk. I took the Long Island Railroad. Okay, then Long Island proper. Proper. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, in some kind of real tropical feeling suburb, <laughs> I walked and there felt like a lot of mosquitoes were all around, but uh-huh. it's very very beautiful kind of houses and. Um, yeah, they're posted up in a house out there shooting some stuff. And yeah, it's, it's, it it was, um, the process of getting that job was kind of a comedy of errors in which I was working in advertising and an old friend from the small press days, Pat Somerville had come out to LA and he was working on the bridge and then 24 and then the leftovers. And, um, he suggested me for the leftovers writer's room and I'd kind of been like bandying about some spec scripts. I wrote a spec script for Black Mirror, just in like a fangirl kind of way, uh-huh. and um, a spec for It's Always Sunny and a spec what? for Archer. Cool. Yeah, oh, I want to read that. It's fun. I mean, they're uh, yeah. It's I, I like doing that stuff. And then I wrote my own pilot. And anyway, so I kind of came close to working in the leftovers room for season three, but didn't get it. But then. Pat was like, you know, next time I have a show of my own, I'll hire you, which is, which never happens. And it was just like, (laughs) that one time that it actually happened, so it was great. (laughs) That's good to know that sometimes there are people who say something and then tend to follow through on it. Yeah. That's an inspiring thing. Weird, right? Yeah, I like to, like when people bring a little optimism into things. Yeah. It's fun. I mean, we can talk about penises being cut off and Uh gross things and stuff like that, but no, it is, I very much like to hear about people kind of just doing these things and they're kind of doing it for fun or for their own interests. Yeah. And I mean, you're also obviously uh, published many times over author and things, but just to kind of be like, I'm going to see if this works out. And then you, you know, you're a really nice person. I'm well, sure that kind of helps. You know? <laughs> That's, uh, well, yeah, like being in a writer's room, I've heard is like being in a submarine <laughs> for you know, 20 weeks or 40 weeks and you don't want to be in a submarine with a crazy person. And, yeah. you know, there's like, I, I guess there's some level of like um, tenacity, but a- mixed with affability, mixed with like an ability to see your ideas get steamrolled and totally be fine with it. Yeah, and yeah. I th- probably like mild sociopathy and narcissism is a qualification for the job. <laughs> it's absolutely a benefit. Yeah. Um, but... Yeah, it it worked it worked out. I've just I've always I've always done well by kind of going with my gut on stuff and by following my interests as kind of purely as I can. And yeah. so, you know, it didn't necessarily make career sense for me to spec out a, an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, <laughs> but I thought I that that would be fun. I, I think that that would be a really good episode, though. <laughs> I would like to see those worlds I overlap. It, it had just, it's funny because the show had just come out, um, or maybe it had been out for a year when I when I wrote the specs. So it was a little while ago, but yeah. um, before, maybe even before I moved to LA, I wrote Whoa. that. Yeah, because that show's been on for 10 years. Oh my God. Or more. That's wild. I was watching it when I still lived in Tempe. Really? And I left Tempe in 2007. I have to check the the, the dates on this file. But... <laughs> Look at the metadata yeah. and see when it began. <laughs> I probably came in later. Is it than a I Word thought. doc? What program are you using? <laughs> then it was Final Draft. Final draft yeah, okay. it was a full on Final Draft, which, right, means I, yeah, I don't know. I must have had more than $10 at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Unless I got it on Napster, in which case, oh, no, unforgiven. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, Amelia Gray, 
Thank you so much for stopping by. I'm sure that you're very busy while you're in New York, and it's wonderful to see you. And everybody, go out and pick up a copy of Isadora out on FSG just for the last few months. So brand new book. Yeah. And hammer out those Amazon reviews. Let's write we'll some let's write some fun ones. Yeah, oh I love that. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next week. It's Staff Only again. I just wanted to point out that this song by which is called is Adora. Pretty fucking germane, am I right? L.O. fucking L. Have a nice week, fuckers. <laughs>